Father, we we just want to get ourselves right with you this evening, Lord. We want to connect with you, Father. We've come here because we want to be in your presence with our brothers and sisters, Father. Lord, we seek your presence. We come here, Lord, with an expectant heart, Father, to feel your presence, to see your love in action, Father, to hear your words, Lord, to hear your Lord. Father, help us this evening to understand just that little bit more about you, Father, and where we sit in the grand scheme of your creation, Father. Lord, help us to have attentive hearts, listening ears. Lord, just open up your word to us, Lord. Amaze us, astound us, Father. But comfort us, Lord. Amen. Well, this evening we are having a look again at Mark. And this week we are looking at chapter 1 and directly after what we talked about last week. Now, if you remember last week, we looked at John the Baptist, who he was, what he did, and a little bit about his backstory and how he came to be the man that he was and ultimately how prepared he was to tell us and Jerusalem about the arrival of Jesus. Now this week, we are looking at verse 9 to 13, and I will read those to you now. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now there is other accounts of this in the other Gospels, and they go into a great deal of detail about the temptations. Mark, he liked to keep it brief. He did this, did this, did this, and then he went and done this. That's what Mark does. So in the space of what? Four verses, Mark skips over the fact that the Holy Spirit came down up from heaven onto Christ, that God spoke physically and audibly to Jesus, identifying him. And Jesus went out into the wilderness, was tempted, and came out and was attended by angels. And he did that all in about a second of text. He does not waste time. He wants this to be a quick this is who he is. Quick, here we go, here we go. What's he going to do? This is what he's going to do. Here we go. It's like a roller coaster, Mark's gospel. You don't get time to think. He's just off. Immediately this happens. And immediately that happens. So we need to slow our reading down if we're going to get anything out of this. 
So we hear this. At the time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John. Now we already know that John is standing in the Jordan and he's baptising all of Jerusalem. All the countryside and all of Jerusalem were there on the banks of the Jordan. And at that same time that John's doing all of this dunk you in next, dunk you in next, he looks up and goes, that's the guy. That's him. That's the one I'm not fit to tie the sandals of. So who's witnessing this? Everyone. Everyone's there witnessing this. They can see this. John's identified Jesus to everyone from around the countryside and Jerusalem. Now that's probably a few thousand people. At least a few thousand people. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, what does that mean? What is that dove-like spirit? What's that symbolising? Peace. It's the Holy Spirit, but what else could it be? Think about the act that it's doing. What's it doing? It's coming down on him. He's being baptised, just like the water going over your head. The Holy Spirit is coming down and baptising him in full view of several thousand people that live in Jerusalem. Full view. The Holy Spirit coming down like a dove, not as a dove, like a dove. What that looked like, I don't know. Maybe it was something like a fiery bird, I don't know. But it was like a dove. So probably a gentle kind of landing. And Jesus was baptised. Now, can we say that Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit in him before that moment? No. Of course he had the Holy Spirit in him. He is the Holy Spirit. And he's God. He's all three. All three are all three. So why on earth did they have to have this thing, this ceremony? Why, what, what was all that about? Why do we need that? Yeah, show it for everyone else. That's why there's so many witnesses there. Just as Jesus coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Torn. That's an interesting word, isn't it? It didn't kind of like, heaven didn't go, ah, here we go. Flutter, flutter. You know that Christian thing of, hello, would you like a cup of tea? It's not that. Torn open. Ripped asunder. This is an aggressive kind of torn, a tearing open. This is something to witness. A voice came from heaven. Not from the sky. From heaven. And what did that voice say? You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
Now, how many people are standing there watching? Thousands. All of a sudden, the heavens are torn open, some mystical bird-like spirit comes down, lands on a man in the water, and then they hear God identify this person as his son. I mean, put yourself in their position. What are you going to think? Is there, can you fake that? No. This is not Jesus telling everyone, hello, I'm the son of God, by the way. This is God physically, audibly telling everyone present, the whole of Jerusalem and the countryside, that this is my son. And I am well pleased. I mean, he's not being chavvy there. He's just saying, I'm very pleased. Now, when God says something about someone, what can we assume is the validity of that statement that he gives? It's absolute truth. Because God cannot lie. So if God says, this is my son, and I am damned happy with him, we take that as the absolute truth. And what does that say about Jesus? Can we trust that? Should we trust that? If we believe in God, should we trust what God is saying about Jesus? Yes, we absolutely should. We don't ask for proof because God is telling us directly and he told them directly. This is the truth of the matter. This is who this person is. Now in our day and age, we have a bit of a problem with identity, don't we? Because our whole society the whole Western society especially has told us that you can be whomever you want to be. You want to be this person, you can be that person. You want to be that person, you can be that person. You want to be this gender, you can be this gender, or you can be that one, or you can be none of the above. What does God say about that? We are used to making up who we are. We all do it. We dress certain ways because we want to perhaps project a certain image. We act certain ways because we want to project a certain image. We try and define ourselves by the music we like, by the cars we drive, the houses we live in, the things we watch on TV, the movies we watch, the food we eat. We try and create this identity for ourselves and project it to other people. We like to tell people, I like this. Do you like this? 
because I like this because that's the sort of person that I am. What does God say you are? We're God's children. And if we're God's children, is he going to say, with you I am well pleased? <laughs> it's a tricky one, isn't it? What do you reckon? Sometimes. Yeah, any advance on sometimes? Okay, let's narrow it down. Would God say to you, you, you are my son slash daughter, with you I am well pleased today? Who could ha- hold their hand up and say, today he's going to be well pleased with me? Not one. One hand. Brave. Why? If we do it by ourselves, we're going to fail. Absolutely every single time, we will fail. But because we are washed with Jesus' blood, we are, we, we're not counted as ourselves. Our identity is Jesus. I told you before, haven't you, that, 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 that image I have of St. Peter standing at the gates with his little scanner. Beep. No, sorry. Beep. Says Jesus. In you go. Beep. Jesus. In you go. Beep. No, no. We're washed in his blood. We're added to the family. So when God says, you are my son, to Jesus, and then we find out later when Jesus says, if you believe in me, you're in the family, then God says this about us too. We get this by default. We get this by grace. So what's your identity? Should we keep trying to identify ourselves by what society lets us? Should we do that? No, we shouldn't do that. I'm sick of the class system in this country. I'm sick of the caste system in other countries. I'm sick of people being labelled as rich or poor or disabled, or differently abled. We have to give labels to people all the time. Now, liberals are really annoying because liberals love, they love to put labels on people. There's a joke, um, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but there's a, a comedian that I like, and he joked once. He's, he, he was very serious. He's not a racist person. But he said, sometimes racists are less racist than people that say they're not. Because for a racist, there are only two types of people, black and white. For people that aren't racist, they put far more labels on what you are and what you aren't. Now, of course, it would be ridiculous for me to say, we should all be a little bit more racist and just get down to narrowing down our labels to two. We shouldn't. We should get down to labelling it as one. 
We are all God's children. I don't care what colour you are. I don't care what class you are. I don't care what car you drive. And I don't care if you can read or you can't. You are a child of God because God says so. It doesn't matter what you think you are. It's what he thinks that's important. Now, a few weeks back, um, I spoke about the, the wilderness and Jesus going there and being tempted, so I'm not going to go all into that again. But it is important. There is a symbolism there of Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days because they had 40 years in the wilderness. It all plays in. 40 is a very important number in the Bible. Jesus had to do that because he had to prove, probably to himself, but also to Satan, that he will not be beaten. And as I said before, when Jesus was tempted, it wasn't because, it wasn't stuff that he didn't want. You can't tempt someone with something they don't want. You can tempt me all day long with liver. You go for it, because I guarantee you I will not go near it. But you wave a sausage under my nose and I will bite your damn hand off. Especially tonight. Because temptation works by giving us what we want, not what we need. Now what happened to all of those witnesses? Think about it, you've got those thousands of people on the banks of the Jordan. They've all turned up because they've heard about John the Baptist. They think, well, this is a great man of God. We need to go there and we need to be baptised. They respect his opinion. And then he turns around and says, see that guy over there? That's the one I've been telling you about. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. I can just do it with water. What happens to those people? Yeah, you'd think that, wouldn't you? But it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't even say they tried to go up to Jesus to do it. Does it? Not a thing. Not sausage. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. I've got to go. But did anyone go, whoa, 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 whoa? Wait. I think I need to get this whole baptism thing sorted. No? And so Jesus disappears into the wilderness for 40 days. When he comes back, are they all queuing up going, Jesus, hello, how was the wilderness? Oh, it's so good to have you back. Um, baptism? No, not a sausage. Nothing. What did Jesus do? What was Jesus' ministry? He goes out, doesn't he? And meets people and talks with them 
Now they've all seen him. The text says that all of Jerusalem, all the countryside, now that could be a bit of hyperbole, a bit of like extravagant talking. That could just be a little bit of an exaggeration. It could be. They use hyperbole in the Bible. But we can assume that there were a lot of people. So even if we don't hold with the fact that every single person was there, we can assume there were a great multitude of people. Does it say anywhere in his text that people came up to him and said, you're that chap by the river? No. He had to keep teaching them, didn't he? And they had to keep finding out again who this guy was. Why? They stood on the riverbank. They saw the Holy Spirit descend on him. They heard the voice of God audibly, not just like a little, I think that was God speaking in my head in a little voice. No. This is my son and I am well pleased. They heard it. They heard his voice. And 40 days later, they're just going, oh, I need to put some shopping list. I need to get this. And God, oh yeah, I think I heard God once. He was down by the river. He said, I can't remember something about it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, fish and chip paper. Brilliant analogy. Yesterday's news. Well, that was, that was over a month ago. That's, that was what God said then. When God says a statement about you, he means it. It's not a transient statement. It's not a statement that is correct then, but not then. All time. But they forgot. Yeah, there was that God thing. Do you remember that bloke, that hairy bloke? Yeah. One that had a locust in his beard. Yeah. And then that was it. There was that bloke, wasn't there? Do you remember? That guy, um, oh. He was the, he was the son of God. That was it, because God told us that he was the son of God. Yeah. Do you remember him? Oh, vaguely. I'm wondering in our faith, do we do that? Do we sometimes forget that Jesus is actually the Son of God and that we have had an encounter with him? And I know we haven't had a physical, we haven't seen him standing right before us and he hasn't, you know, touched us. Although when I look back to my own uh, coming to God, I see him standing there when I was in the room. I didn't see him at the time, but when I look back, I see him, I feel his presence, and I could say to you now, I knew exactly where he was standing in the church. But I didn't physically see him then. My brain has just kind of added him in, because I knew he was there. I felt his presence. I'm sure all of you have felt God's presence. You've felt Christ's presence. I'm hoping that you felt the Holy Spirit's presence. Because if we claim to believe in Jesus, you can't do that really without the Holy Spirit. 
You can't really know who Jesus is without the Holy Spirit working in you. So we felt the Holy Spirit's presence and yet we don't always allow him to help us when we need him. Do we? Something goes terribly wrong in your life and you run around like a blue-arse fly trying to sort it out on your own merit. It doesn't work. And eventually prayer. I keep forgetting. It's easy for us to look back on these people that heard and saw and felt the presence of God and to go, what a bunch of idiots. And we do it every damn day. We forget who Jesus is and who God said he was. The battle is won. We are living in victory. We're not going to live in a victory that's far away from us in the past or in the, pre- uh, the future. It's done. Christ's own words. It's done. We live in victory. We need to start acting like it. We need to stop relying on our own strength, on our own thoughts. Because if we rely on the Holy Spirit, if we rely on God, if we rely on Jesus, in every aspect of our life, we cannot lose. We must remember who he is and who God said he was. Now, how do we do that every day? Because we've been failing pretty much. But we need to stop. So how are we going to do it? Any ideas? Stay in the Word. Prayer. Anything else? Meet? Yes. Keep meeting together. Praying together. Reading Scripture together. Anything else? I mean, on that on its own, we do it, to be fair. Believe it. Yes. Yes. Uh, Mr Jones and I were praying in the office before the service and we prayed that tonight in prayer God would give us pictures. That he would put stuff in our heads, give us pictures, encouragement, things we can see with our minds. Read scripture. Now I know I bang on about the biblical backgrounds and the context and all this and all that. And that is important, fundamentally important. But also you must allow scripture to speak to you. Read it. Pray about it. God, what are you telling me in this? Just because it's not the correct interpretation that the thinky types say, if it speaks to you, if it's true, if you can go through the checklist, is this something that God would say? Is this something that God would want me to do? If it ticks all the boxes, if it's good, if it's honest, if it's true, if it's loving, 
and go with it. Don't think that your Bible is a book of instructions that needs someone like me to interpret for you. This is a book of instructions that you can interpret through prayer. The Holy Spirit will open your mind a lot more than I can, I can promise you that. How many times have you read through Scripture, maybe a passage that you've read hundreds of times, and you go, oh, I've never noticed that before. Oh, well, that means, oh, I've read, I read that yesterday and I didn't know that. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit will open Scripture to you, will speak to you, allow it. And then you might start being strong enough to believe what God said about Christ. And if he says it about Christ, you might start believing what he says about you. And then we can start living in victory instead of condemnation, instead of loss and sorrow and grief. We can live in victory. He won! He beat the odds. We need to live in that moment. Sometimes I think as Christians what we do is we, we see Jesus on that cross and we leave him there. And we go, do you know what, I'm going to feel damned guilty the rest of my life that that man died. Yes, we should feel some sort of guilt and shame. But don't live in that. Because Christ rose. He ascended to heaven. He won. Live in his victory. You are who God says you are. Don't let anyone tell you any different.